Coming up on Philosophy Talk, worship. And now, please rise for our opening hymn, uh, In the Garden of Eden by I, Ron Butterfly. Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing wonder and awe. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. In the Garden of Eden, Some things deserve to be worshipped while others don't. What makes something worthy of worship? How do we tell the false gods from the true? Why do you worship? Hey Marge, remember when we used to make out to this hymn? In a world that has been disenchanted by crass materialism, by modern science. Are there still things that invoke wonder and awe? Wait a minute, this sounds like rock and or roll. Worship, coming up on Philosophy Talk. After the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, our topic is worship. Ken, I looked up worship in the dictionary, and I don't really agree with the definition I found. Well, give us the dictionary definition, John, and we'll figure out what you disagree with. Okay, worship, colon, the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Then they give us examples, the worship of God and ancestor worship. Well, uh, what's wrong with that? I don't get it. Well, first of all, it's inconsistent, or at least the uh, examples don't fit with the definition. God is a deity, that's that's true, but my ancestors are not deities. Well, Far from it, for well, the most part. Well, John, picky, picky, picky. Look, maybe people who worship their ancestors, you know, who engage in ancestor worship, are deifying their ancestors, thinking of them as deities. Well, this whole deity thing doesn't seem required, as far, far as I can see. The philosopher Bertrand Russell didn't believe in deities, but he wrote a very famous essay called A Free Man's Worship. So what did Russell think uh, uh, he should be worshiping? Well, what he thought we should do was this. We build a temple for the worship of our own ideals, in music, in architecture, in the untroubled kingdom of reason, and in the golden sunset magic of lyrics, where beauty shines and glows, remote from the touch of sorrow, remote from the fear of change, remote from the failures and disenchantments of the world of fact. In the contemplation of these things, the vision of heaven will shape itself in our hearts. Gosh, sounds to me like Russell's suggesting that we worship logic. I can kind of go along with that. Songs and buildings? I think that's a bit weird, John. The dictionary seems actually much more sensible. I mean, if we worship something, shouldn't it be a deity? You know, something like a person, but more rational, more forgiving, more perfect than us. Well, a lot of people would agree with Russell that truth and harmony are perfectly worthy of worship. But, but you know, Ken, the, the more I think about it, the more I like the idea of worshiping ancestors. Now you're sounding atavistic primitive, John. You're sounding like a primitive dude. Well, look at it this way. Our ancestors made it possible for us to exist. In that sense, they are the true ground of our being, to use a theological phrase. But I don't just mean our mothers and fathers and grandparents. Evolution teaches us that our ancestors go way back. We should worship the whole tree of life. Well, that seems really weird. Worship, what, dead dinosaurs? Look, at least God or gods can appreciate being worshipped, and they can give the worshiper or the worshipping community, they can give something back, some payback. 
Well, that's a good point. Okay, I'll revise my view. I think we should really worship the earth. It's truly the ground of the being of the whole tree of life. No earth, no tree of life, no ancestors, no me, no you, Ken. And if we worship the earth instead of ravaging it, we will get some payback. It will remain a hospitable place for a bit longer. Gosh, I don't know, John. But, you know, look, the more I think about it, the more I, the more I like what Kant had to say. Which was? Well, the, the two things fill the mind with ever-increasing wonder and awe, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. Look, I think the, the human-created system of norms, I think it's awesome. And it, it, and if we worship it, that worship may, may make it work even better. And, and the earth that you like so much is part of the starry heavens. So, you know, there I get to agree with both you and Kant. That's a rare opportunity. Well, thinking about it even more, I think we should talk to a philosopher who's thought a lot about worship and can present a more traditional approach than either you or I seem to favor. And we'll soon be joined by someone who fits that need. That's Daniel Speak from Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. We want to hear from our listeners as well. I'm sure they have some thoughts on what is or isn't worthy of worship or whether worship's a good idea in the first place. The number is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Julie Napolin, talked to a group in San Francisco that, at least at first glance, has an even less orthodox approach to the proper object of worship than you or I, John. She files this report. In the 1960s, saxophonist John Coltrane helped bring jazz to new and revolutionary places. Many scholars have said that if you listen to a John Coltrane solo, you can hear the cadences of black preaching. Scott Saul is a professor at UC Berkeley, an author of Freedom Is, Freedom Ain't, Jazz and the Making of the Sixties. In the way that he'll take a, a small idea, a small bit of melody, and then conjugate it and conjugate it and work out all its variations. And it's a way of finding in a bit of simplicity a world of complication and a world of beautiful elaboration. And you could say it's similar to how people search after God. Jesus and, hey, Lord God Almighty, and you kind of go down, go. That's Archbishop Franzo King. He's the co-founder of the Church of John Coltrane, a small storefront in San Francisco's Fillmore District. In 1965, King had a conversion experience when hearing Coltrane play live. I think after the sound baptism, the music became more than a cultural and historical experience, but it also became a mandate from the Holy Spirit for us to get creatively involved in the establishing of the community and covering the globe with what we call Coltrane consciousness. King helped start a listening clinic where people would get together and listen to Coltrane records. The group grew into a full-fledged church, and in 1982, it was accepted into the African Orthodox Church of the West. King became an archbishop, and John Coltrane was canonized as a saint. We say that anointed sound that leaped down from the throne of heaven out of the very mind of God and incarnated in one John, well, I am Coltrane, and we beheld his beauty. Every Sunday, King reads from Scripture and gives sermons quoting John Coltrane. And then he can reveal to us those things that are hidden. More than that, he tries to recreate for his congregation the experience of being baptized by sound. 
The Church Jazz Ensemble features Archbishop King on drums and sax. He didn't start out as an instrumentalist, but learned to play as the church grew. It began with a love for this music, this African-American classical music, and the revolutionary spirit of the music. And as uh, St. John Coltrane said, the, the freedom of the music. And it prepared for us the kind of mindset that uh, encouraged free thinking. And it uh, was the kind of music that dispelled doubts and fears. The music of John Coltrane, man, there's so many words, to, it's, it's, it's amazing. For the last 16 years, Irene Kathleen has been coming to the church where she first heard John Coltrane. I really thank God for John Coltrane and, and, and God giving him the blessing, the everything to be who he is. Uh, John Coltrane's music is very powerful. It's a uh, music that we really need, that we believe that continues to keep the earth in orbit. Berkeley professor Scott Saul says Coltrane offers a kind of mantra to carry with you. It's not so much about a journey to a destination. It's about living within the force field suggested by the music. It asks you to inhabit a kind of space. For Archbishop King, the Church of John Coltrane is an extension of that space. It's about uplifting. And it was uh, St. John's desire, as he says in his testimony, to, to be given the means and the privilege to make others happy through music. So yes, I do feel closer, but even the presence of, of God in that music and in that sound. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Julie Napolin. I'm John Perry, and with me is Ken Taylor. Our guest is Daniel Speak. He's professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University. He's author of many things connected to our topic today. Daniel, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thanks for having me. So, Daniel, uh, tell us briefly what accounts for your interest in the topic of worship. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, that... that uh, report was just fascinating. Um, and I think it shows uh, partly what's going on here is that just as a philosopher, I'm intrigued by any sort of fascinating puzzle. And worship presents one of those, but I'm, I'm going to be honest, um, part of what's really animating my interest in this is that I'm inclined to worship. And as a philosopher, I hate the idea that I might be inclined to an activity that's incoherent or irrational or something like that. So I feel sort of moved to figure this out as a way, I don't know, of self-justifying or something. So I'm, I'm glad you liked our roving philosophical reporters yeah. uh, a bit. That if, if she hadn't said, could you have guessed that this church was located in San Francisco? <laughs> I, su <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, there could be other places. I suppose it could have been New Orleans. In New Orleans. Okay, so, so what, what do you think of our dictionary's definition, the feeling yeah. or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity? Is, is, that, is that a pretty good definition? Is that what you see worship is consisting of? I think I'm with you, John, that something's, something's not enough there. Uh, for, first of all, one thing that strikes me is that worship seems principally to be not a feeling, but an activity, an activity that mm. people engage in. And um, feelings probably accompany that, and, and maybe we want people to have certain kinds of dispositions in their worship. But principally, I take it that worship is an activity, in particular an activity of praising the excellence of an object, though I don't think that's enough. Do you really it's think, at least that. Do you really think it's, it says the feeling or expression yeah. of reverence and adoration? Now, I take reverence yeah. and adoration to be attitudes 
right, towards something yeah. that can lead to activity. But it would seem to yeah. me you can engage in the activity without the real attitude. And you can That's have the point. attitude yeah. without without any necessarily follow up activity, except having yeah. having this attitude. Don't you? Th- yeah. I mean, th- that part of it. So, so yeah, how- the the part that I would question is whether it has to be for a deity, but that it's an attitude of some kind. So, so let, let's refine it. Yeah. Say, say, say the activity that typically expresses the feeling of reverence and adoration yeah. for X. <laughs> yeah. So that that gives a Would, that that makes it an activity and it leaves open what it is we have to worship. Well, what do you think about that, uh, Daniel? Is that a better? I think that's better. I think that's better. Let me just express a worry about how this goes is that um there's a trick about what how much praise needs to be for example, I think John Perry is a very intelligent man. But <laughs> when you. saying that yeah, in saying that, I don't, I don't uh, worship him. Oh, uh, Ken Taylor is exceptionally handsome, but in saying that, I, I don't, I don't, I don't worship him. What's, what's the missing thing? I think it's something like this: that we praise the excellence of the object with a view to declaring that it's worthy to be a fundamental organizing principle of one's life. A fundamental organizing principle. Right. I, I can see that that even if yeah. someone was as, as handsome as Ken and as intelligent right. as me, they wouldn't right. qualify to be a fundamental organizing principle. Well, I mean, but, Which but, isn't to say that Ken isn't exceptionally handsome. That's but, right. but if I have, I mean, is that worship? Does it have to, I can have reverence and awe at something, reverence for yes. something and awe at something. Does that That's follow right. that it's going to be a fundamental organizing principle, or is worship more than reverence and awe? That's what I, yeah, what I'm pushing is the idea that it's actually more than just the reverence or awe. We might have reverence or awe when we hear Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. Or, or John Coltrane. Or John Coltrane, exactly. That was, that was really, really wonderful. And yet um, it doesn't move to the level of worship, it seems to me, as it does with the Coltrane folks, until that object is taken to be a fundamental organizing principle, which it sounds like you're getting in the Coltrane case. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're discussing worship with Daniel Speak from Loyola Marymount University. We're going to get into asking Daniel about worshiping a Christian God, but but what about you? What do you worship, if anything? Do you even approve of worship? Is it a good thing or a bad thing, and why? You can join us by calling toll-free 1-800-525-9917. I'll repeat, 1-800-525-9917. The nature of worship, the proper object or objects of worships, and your calls and emails, which we also worship, when Philosophy Talk continues. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve some. Aside from tennis players, does anyone really got to serve anyone or anything else? We're discussing worship, and I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor, and this is Philosophy Talk. What do you worship and why? Does worship make sense in the cold, harsh reality of 21st century life? Or is it perhaps more necessary than ever? The toll-free number, 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Or you can email us at comments at philosophytalk.org. Our guest is Daniel Speak from Loyola Marymount University. Uh, Daniel, let's let's think about a Christian God. I'm going to ask you a, let's say, question with an edge. God's all-perfect, timeless, unchanging, all that stuff. 
Well, what's yeah. the point of worshiping such a god? I know he's a big bad dude, but he doesn't need our <laughs> worship. He doesn't get anything from our worship, so why should we bother? Good. Um, that's a great question. I, I do think it's at the heart of a concern that a lot of uh, Christian theists in particular have with worship. It was a problem, for example, that bothered C.S. Lewis. So even as C.S. Lewis was kind of making his way into theism, he worried that the commands in the Bible to worship, the uh, the people praising God looked a lot like, you know, the people who gather around a tyrant to praise the tyrant, and uh, he thought that was pretty ugly. But um, what he thought was, eventually, that praise comes pretty naturally to folks when you see something excellent, and that maybe what's going on with Christian theism is that if there really is uh, uh, a terrific, absolutely wonderful being, uh, that praising isn't something that's commanded so, so much as it's something that would come natural and be good for the thing that did the praising. So, so if, if we look at the Bible, and I'm an amateur at all this, I'll do, uh, I've read most of it, uh, mm-hmm. there's really more than one concept of God that seems to come out, right? Right in the yeah. beginning, there's the creator of heavens and earth and we, uh, then, then there's this guy that appears in the burning bush and, and, and adopts uh, Jews and gives them Israel and so forth and so on. Yeah. Uh, and then there's then there's the Christian God, and then I guess you know later on the Christian God morphs into this this medieval uh, principle of perfection. Now yeah. the, the the God the God of the the Old Testament. Uh, I, I mean, he seems to be just mainly feared, right? Mm. I mean, is is it? Can you worship? Is it is it really worship if it's if it's demanded and it's given out of fear, uh, yeah. or or is that the wrong c- perception of what's going on in the Old Testament? Well, yeah, uh, there's some tricky hermeneutical questions here. That's not fair of you, John, to force those on me. But <laughs> well, uh, her- herme- a- hermeneutics and me uh, were old friends. I knew his brother. <laughs> hermeneutics jo- has to do yeah. with the oh, interpretation right. of text, folks. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's that right. means that's interpretation right. of text. Go ahead, yeah. uh, Daniel. Um, well. Here's what I'm inclined to think, is that uh, I'm inclined to go old school on you guys, but not quite as old school as the Old Testament, but to go back to the medieval period, as you suggested, and think that that St. Anselm was basically getting the story right about the biblical God when he said that God, by definition, is in some respect a being than which a greater can't be conceived. So a kind of a maximally good, mm-hmm. uh, um, a greatest possible being— and I admit there's a, there are problems with how to see that in the Old Testament and maybe even in the New Testament. Um, I'm not going to solve those problems, but what I think is going on, what Christian theists should think, at least, is something like Anselm was getting it right. The God of the Bible is that maximally good being and who would be worthy of worship if, if, uh, there's, a, if there's a bunch of sort of fear-based concerns in the Old Testament. Um, those will have to get worked out by our biblical interpretation in some way. Okay, so now let, let's look at Orthodox Christianity. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm willing to give you, okay, out of the Bible we get kind of uh, this, this merciful God of the New Testament plus the kind of yep. what you might call the logic of monotheism. And mm-hmm. Anselm uh, picks up on that and he says, uh, it, 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 if there's only one God, then, the, then there can't be anything else really going on. So he has to, to be completely perfect. And that Now, the question is, when you get something that 
abstract, something that you're forced yeah. to believe in by logic alone, because Anselm believes in this ontological argument that you can yeah. explain if you got a minute. <laughs> I mean, yeah. is, uh, how can I, I mean, isn't it a little like like Russell worshiping numbers? I mean, uh, what a, what is an abstract? Well, I mean, a concrete, yeah. abstract, perfect being need from us, and well, it, and, yeah. and apparently. But, why would why would he care about it? But John, I think mm-hmm. I think you missed something in what Daniel said earlier, and I, and I want to I'm jumping in because I want to stress that thing that you said earlier. Look, you can look at this as two ways from the god of from the side of the worship e the object worshipped and the mm-hmm. side of the worshipper. You can think of the the the, the worshipped object as demanding worship from the right. worshipper, or you can just think that the worshipper, in cognizing or thinking about or considering this object, the appropriate attitude it strikes the worshipper. That this is yeah. the attitude that this thing demands. Like it's like respect for the dignity of a person. You see a mm-hmm. person. It's not that they necessarily demand this respect, but you mm-hmm. see them and you understand what it is to be a person. You think, ah, I respect your dignity. Well, you 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 see the infinite. You're awe-inspired. Mm-hmm. You you cognize God and you're moved to this attitude of worship, not because He demands it, but because it's appropriate right. to the thing. What do you think about that, Tanya? Yeah, that seems exactly right. So, and if you think about the way we we're, we're worried when people. Um, see a beautiful sunset, or they 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 encounter Van Gogh's irises, and they're unmoved. Um, they they seem indifferent to it. In the same way, we feel something's wrong when a person you know listens to your opening, hears um, Reverend uh, from the Simpsons, Reverend. Oh shoot, Reverend. <laughs> Never mind. Lovejoy. Yeah, Lovejoy. Okay. Uh, when you hear him, and you don't and you don't think that's funny, we think, look, there's a kind of excellence here you're not responding to. On the Christian the-, the Christian theistic story, there's this maximal excellence, and then to your point, John, it seems to me that we don't have to think of this maximal excellence purely abstractly. I mean, one of the pieces of maximal excellence will be will be uh, various elements will be personal. There'll be love and goodness and graciousness and forgiving, as I think Ken was mentioning in his opening. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about worship with Daniel Speak from Loyola Marymount University, and we'd love to have you join this conversation. 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Or email us at comments at philosophytalk.org. We've got a whole lineup of callers. Uh, Jeremy in San Francisco, you're first up. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Jeremy. Well, thank you. Um, one of the things that, and I think it may have already been covered, but when you were discussing the topic earlier, um, it was sort of like the person who's praying is doing all the activity. And I think that for people of faith, in that experience of prayer, there's a sense of connection. So even though they're praying, they feel that the divine is also reaching to them. So it's sort of like heaven and earth coming together. Um, so, I mean, you know, I just, I think, you know, I think it's kind of been covered, but just wanted to kind of expand maybe the definition where for people, again, who are engaged in it, it's this sort of, um, it's not just sort of a one-way phone call. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Daniel, what do you think? Thanks, Jeremy, for the call. Yeah, I think this is a nice point in part because it raises the problem with what it would mean to worship um, non-persons, non-agents. Uh, the way Jeremy's thinking of it, and the way I'm inclined to think of it, is that that worship does involve a certain kind of give and take that seems incoherent if it's worship of the earth or really. Uh, I don't think that's incoherent. I mean, I don't know. Hmm. This is not incoherent. I don't know if it amounts to worship to have mm-hmm. reverence and awe at the beauty and majesty of of the earth, the universe, and out of that reverence and awe to treat the earth gently. 
Right. So to yes. orient yourself uh, toward the earth in hey, a certain way. Is that? I've yes. got a convert. <laughs> is that? Is that? And it seems to me anybody who misses that is missing something about the earth and our relationship to it. Is that incoherent? Yeah. No, that doesn't seem incoherent. That seems right. It's the same attitude we will have towards um, towards uh, babies or anything that we fundamentally care about. But again, on my view, it won't rise to the level of worship unless what you're doing when you recognize the excellence of this thing is is declaring it to be worthy to be an organizing principle of your life. So, and yeah. uh, okay. So, but I mean, uh, look at look at some of the uh, old. Uh, 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 re- religions that were monotheistic. They, they I mean, yeah. I'm no scholar, but they they tended at least to include some things that uh, are a little ecological, you know. And mm. and the thing is that that the, the attitude of worship, uh, as opposed to the attitude of just getting what you can out of it, uh, re- yeah. results in good things. Now, it, your point's good. I mean, maybe it's necessary as these people did mm-hmm. to personify it, right? To anthropomorphize uh, in some way. Right. So maybe mm-hmm. worship the earth has to be worship the earth personified but what's wrong yeah, with that? It, it, that that probably is okay you know uh, or at least it's coherent with the way i'm thinking of worship that insofar as you're thinking of mother earth or uh you 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 grant <laughs> to nature a certain um agency but you know here's the the problem with that supposedly i don't know if if everyone will agree with this but in our post-enlightenment scientific outlook, we don't really think that the Earth or the ecology, the the uh, environment, is a is an agent proper. Well, that that's true. You're, but we'll have to take that up some more. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about worship with uh, Daniel Speak from Loyola Marymount University. Join this conversation. One eight hundred five two five nine nine one seven. That's one eight hundred five two five nine nine one seven. Or email comments at philosophytalk.org. And we've got Felix in San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Felix. Well, what's your comment or question? Hi. Thank you very much for putting me on. Um, I wanted to say that there was something that was said early in the introduction where you talked about um, not just to worship a, a, a god or, or an ideology or anything else like that, but to worship a set of shared values or norms or this kind of organizing principle. Um, it seems as though these norms and these values are rarely examined, and, and examination tends to lead to the declaration of heresy. And the examination of these ideas and people who eventually disagree with one person's worship leads to, you know, a, a disregard of justice and eventually, you know, <laughs> the slaughter of people just because they don't share these shared values. No, I think you're, yeah. uh, Felix, uh, I think you're asking, thanks for the call, I think you're asking mm-hmm. a deep point not just about our ethical values, but like, thank God, if to worship God, is that to have unquestioning reverence? And so when somebody cites God as their source... Of authority is, is that supposed to end all conversation with them? I mean, I think Felix, <laughs> there's a fundamental worry there about whether anything should be put at this way, such that it's above questioning, above examination. What do yeah. you think? Yeah, this I, again, I think that's a deep worry. So, if, even if you think about the way I was putting my conception of worship in terms of an object's being worthy to be uh, a fundamental organizing principle of one's life. I think we should be honest that, that that's a declaration of uh, what Kant would have called heteronomy, right? Well, that there's some sense in which I'm giving up to my object, to this object of worship, um, my right to determine the direction of my own life. And that's a really dangerous thing because autonomy is so morally important, and we see the misuse of people giving up their autonomy in these ways. Um, yeah, I just think that's probably – that's a problem for life 
Well, uh, wait a minute. A so, wait a minute, though. How can you ever justify giving up your autonomy to anything, Glenn? Good. I mean, that's a worry, but so it seems to me like a deep worry and maybe an un, an un, you know, solvable worry. This is excellent. Yeah, I think um, I, I'm enough of a Kantian to care about autonomy uh, that I'm worried about giving away my autonomy. But that's why it seems crucial that the picture of the object of worship here be Anselmian in this way. If it's not a maximally good being, if it's not a being then which the non greater can be conceived, a being, by the way, that you might think, in surrendering my autonomy to this being, I'll get it back. I can, I can have some confidence that in the goodness, the maximal goodness of this being, that I'll receive it back, that it won't be taken advantage of. But to no other object could I do that other than a, a maximally good one. So so that that's a kind of... Uh, Interesting, coherent, and and you know deeply uh, Christian response, and 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 yeah. we're getting through the cybersphere. I think the voice of Bertrand Russell, <laughs> in, in in a form of a message from Ten Q, uh, at Pack Bell. He says, to the extent that worship involves adoration, it is a childish and immature expression of spirituality. Mm-hmm. The worship of imaginary, superintelligent aliens—that is, Christianity, Islam, or any kind of deism is a fear-based corruption of the spiritual instinct rooted in the original ignorance of humans about the world around them and pursued with the goal of extracting (laughs) mercy or favors. Just reading between the lines, I I, I, I think he disapproves. Yeah, take that, Daniel. What do you mean about that? (laughs) Appreciate that subtle reading between the lines, John. That's impressive. Um, Well, this is just the worry that, uh, as I said at the beginning, makes me want to think through the nature of worship because I think the that sentiment is not totally irrational. But it does seem to me to be rooted in uh, a prior confidence that there is no maximally good being. Right. Uh, and if, if that's right, then, then I, I, I'm inclined to think, and especially if I can be shown it's right, then uh, what I do when I worship is all the things he just said. No, you know, I think you're right. And I think I would describe your picture and our emailer's picture as kind of opposite sides of a Kierkegaardian framework. I mean, Kierkegaard yeah. thought that faith from the non from a non-faith perspective looked and was absurd, right? That's because right. it was his guarantee, you know, he was supposed to kill Isaac, but he was supposed to do it in the utter confidence that he would get Isaac back again through faith. Yes. And then it, he couldn't rationally convince himself of that. And you kind of have this attitude. You're going to surrender your autonomy to this being, right? But is that because mm-hmm. you think you have some grounds for confidence that there is this Anselmian perfection? Well, well, let, let me interject. Soren Kierkegaard, yeah. uh, a Danish philosopher of the 19th century, one of the founders mm-hmm. of existentialism, although he didn't intend to found existentialism. Yeah. Excuse me. So what do you think, Daniel? Let me just add that my wife is fascinated with Kierkegaard. I'm glad he's not alive because I think she would leave me for him. She's kind of <laughs> said that sort of thing. So, uh, But I do think that there's something, there's something right about this picture, that there's something scandalous in uh, the way and Kierkegaard thought that it was the, the Christian commitment on these views that had to have a kind of scandal. Um, so do I think I have grounds? <sighs> yeah, yeah. Do we? Uh, I think that there, I have grounds. Do I have grounds that um, I could uh, display to show that our emailer um, is irrational in his conviction? No, I don't think I have that. So in the, uh, in the end, though, so worship is a chancy thing, right? You're surrendering yeah. That's right. your autonomy to a being you hope is perfect, and you have some kind yep. of faith is perfect, but you don't really know that. Right? So I it's, think a, that's it's right. a pretty chancy thing. It's very chancy. I think it's a very dangerous uh, business. Wow. 
You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing worship with Daniel Speak from Loyola Marymount University. Well, what do you think? Does worshiping a perfect God make any sense at all? Are you with Russell and others who worship timeless truth? Or are you with me who worships the earth? Or with Ken, who likes the moral law within and the starry heavens above, although maybe he's a convert to earth worship. <laughs> well, there you go. Why worship and what to worship? And we've got lots of callers. We'll get to all of, uh, as many of you as we can when Philosophy Talk continues. We're discussing the concept of worship. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Daniel Speak from Loyola Marymount University. We've got lots of callers in the line. And uh, welcome to Philosophy Talk, Joe in San Francisco. What's your comment or question? I I think it's John Perry that I'm agreeing with as far as the earth, because when I think of worshiping a god, regardless of what the religion is, it's the beginning of cultism and hierarchical. When all of us, if we were worshiping the earth, every single person on earth, if they were turning their worship towards the earth, don't you think we'd be a lot kinder to it? Well, Joe, that's a very good question. Daniel, so do you really think it doesn't make any sense to worship the earth? I mean, because that was your, you know, that was your, that's kind of your claim. That's an incoherent. It's not a kind of object that you can worship. Yeah, I suppose um, I set the bar pretty high for the concept of worship in in the way I'm thinking about it, in terms of having it be a fundamental organizing principle of your life and it being able to receive your autonomy and give it back and that sort of thing. Uh, I guess what I what I think is that these talk this talk about worship here is, in some way, it's it's. Uh, it's depending on an extension of the concept right. of worship proper to to just thinking very highly about something. And, uh, you know, I think we should do that about the yeah, earth. I, we I should think, think very highly I th- about it. I think part, I th- as I listen to you more, I think part of the problem for you must be that, in a sense, the earth can't direct us. So it's not something to right. which you surrender your autonomy over to, and then it can give you back, give you that autonomy right. back in terms of moral direction. Right, so right. It's, it, it, it really can't direct us. Well, we've got lots more callers in the line. Uh, Donald in San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Donald. Uh, yes, hello. What, what's your comment or question? Um, first, it's a great show. Um, I, I'm, my point is that um, I think it's very human and very basic for people to want, see the world around them and see how awe-inspiring things can mm-hmm. be. I'm a designer, and I see churches take that idea further by creating awe-inspiring buildings or inspiring music and this very strong human desire to understand that something is outside of themselves which is bigger than themselves and then com- mix that up with with um, a dogma for life based on social history which again is something very important but something very separate to the awe-inspiring idea of something outside of yourself, if you see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So the traditional religions, they, because of a historical accident of the fact that books only existed in one place at one time, the Bible is this whole 
codification of human wisdom at one point, but these days we've got lots of books, and it's not all in the one place, but it, the Bible still represents a great deal of wisdom for organizing your life, but by combining that with the awe-inspiring stuff, I think that's the leap which the philosopher is on your show is really outlined as being an important one, but, but, but personally, I think it's wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> Donald, thanks for that. We've got another caller who has apparently an opposite point of view, so I'm going to put these two together, and then the three of us okay. can, can jump in there. Anne in Palo Alto, welcome to Philosophy Talk here. Uh, Anne's not there, so... I think we've got some divine intervention We've got some divine intervention. Every time we talk about God, things go wrong. I I don't quite know what that is. Daniel, why don't you respond to Donald there? Well, one thing to say is, uh, looks like I'm in the minority here today. Um, And, uh, you know, as philosophers, we're used to that. Most of us have minority views about something. Um, But one of the things that I, I, I think Donald was noting is that you can think that the sort of moral pull of uh, religious devotion and the pull towards a certain kind of awe, that those can pull in two different directions. And I think that's true. What I'm imagining is that in in worship that's worthy of the name, those two things come together. So, Daniel, here's, here's my problem with your position okay. on worshiping the earth, which is, uh, and Ken seemed to agree that the worth, the, 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 the earth doesn't provide us direction. But think about this Christian God, this Anselmian God. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to me Hume had a good point. Hume in the dialogues and religion is often taken to be a skeptic, but he actually comes down on the side of religious belief. He just says you don't know anything about what this God might want or not want on the basis mm-hmm. of the arguments that convince you of the existence of this God. He was saying it with the argument from design, but I think the ontological argument is simpler. It's not clear what we should do just because we believe in God. On the other hand, the earth, all of our feelings of awe and reverence start with things like sunsets and babies and the, the new day and the sun warming us up. Uh, and it's it's also it's somewhat cl- clear to me what we should do uh, if if we worship the earth and if we worship this completely abstract perfect being who who might have you know m- maybe were one of his early childhood mistakes well I guess he's perfect he didn't have a child <laughs> and and he would just wish we would go away and annihilate ourselves but the, but the earth it's clear what we have to do that's why people are so upset about global warming we're we're somehow ignoring what the earth is asking us to do but do you think we really need I, I, I have reverence and awe for the earth. I mean, I think the earth deserves to be treated gently, mm-hmm. and it inspires me to awe. But do you really think that that attitude carries with it anything like a set of commandments that could be a guiding principle for life? I no, mean, no, but I, but, I, but I think we should exploit the fact that humans have a natural tendency to worship and say, let's enlist it in this, in this cause and get mm-hmm. people to realize that, you know, diverting a stream or, or throwing pollution, it is... is is above and beyond the normal uh, range of criticism. It's just not to be so done. I'm getting a note here that we should try one more time. Anne is there. We try <laughs> one more time. Anne, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay. Terrific. What's your comment or question? Well, I wonder why um, you haven't touched at all on mysticism, which isn't a form of worship, but it's a, a practice wherein one comes to realize that there's only one consciousness and that 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 consciousness is myself and I'm in union with everything and so mm-hmm. that life be- life itself becomes the worship because there's no separation the ego has been seen through and dissolved and then we're one with 
the Godhead or consciousness or awareness, and that's a very large tradition in the East, and it's mm-hmm. also a part of Christian mysticism and any other path of mysticism. So what do you think of mystical union with oneness and all that, Daniel? Well, that seems like uh, something that's that's at least compatible with the concept of worship that I'm imagining. Uh, really, it sounds like the the question for, or the difference between Anne and I might be about what the object of worship should be, where it sounds like you could at least conceive of the way Anne was putting it, that uh, the proper object of worship could be oneself or one's own autonomy or one's will. And again, I think that's that might make as much sense as um, as worshiping the earth. Um, uh, there, at, at least there is something. That, I didn't mean to sound deflationary there, John. Okay. Uh, uh, but let me just make a point about the earth worship, uh, John. It seems like one concept of worship, the concept I have in mind, will want to promote the good of the thing, if the thing has a good. Um, to promote the good of the earth, I mean, won't it have this entailment that um, we're kind of bad for the earth? And wouldn't worship of the earth lead to um, uh, no, how could we give be, us a reason to well I don't see how that follows does that follow from your view <laughs> well, that isn't, we're going to bad for the earth isn't well no that was going to be just an empirical question yeah. about global warming oh, and, right. and etc well I, could, uh, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a good point I mean there is a point there, I think there is actually is a philosophical and religious movement out there that says humans yeah. should get, get out of the way that's right uh, so that would be an objection to the way I'm thinking of it but I guess I'd say you have to worship things under a mode of presentation and the mode that is some mm. way of thinking of them and we you'd have to be worshiping the earth as um the source of our right uh yeah. thriving in life right. and so forth and so as on. the ground of our being right we find that yeah. thing which is the ground of our being not, not the ground of of ants being <laughs> well <laughs> right. the ground of being or maybe the yeah of, the ground of uh, the ground of of life you know that uh, that we know and cognize and are wonder struck by uh, but again I, I guess i do agree with part of what daniel thinks I mean, I, this idea of surrendering one's autonomy and get, getting it back, that's getting back guiding principles for a life, right, with, mm-hmm. with thick mm-hmm. commandments. And you can imagine that, that you can say, have an attitude towards something. You guide mm-hmm. my life, O oh Lord, not me. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. that something can deserve to be the guide of your life. I'm not quite sure the earth can be that, mm-hmm. you know. So I guess I'm agreeing with you, Daniel. Am I? I like that. I like that. Anything you say that's in agreement with me, I'm inclined to accept. <laughs> um, but, John, is, isn't, isn't this um, – what I think I've heard from you is a certain sort of pragmatism about this, that you think it would be good for the earth if we took this attitude. Not necessarily that the earth is a proper object or an appropriate object, but it, it would probably be good for us. Yes, you, you, you did hear that, and that, that's yeah. a, a deep fissure in my thinking. It's kind of like utilitarians who uh, – who think we should tell people they should uh, yes. o- obey the rules, but down right. deep they think we should do whatever's best on that occasion. We've got time for one yes. last caller. Uh, Shan, welcome Hi. to Velocity Talk, Shan. Uh, welcome to you. I've enjoyed it immensely. Uh, I'm approaching, I'm in my elderhood, but I'm almost 80. And uh, I was raised as an Orthodox Jew. I went to Hebrew school, but frankly... I know that there is forgiveness because once a year you can confess and make good. Jan, eh, this has to be quick. No threat, no threat about turning into toast. But what I am is a person who accepts by not judging anybody hmm. else's beliefs. But here's a little saying that I've come up with. 
praise is food. Praise is soul food. Praise <laughs> is soul is food for the soul, and that's what they're doing at the church of John Coltrane. I am, will <laughs> be, and I love all of it. Okay, thanks a lot, Shan, for and, that. And you're not really old. 80's the new 60s. So, uh, Daniel, right. <laughs> give, give one last comment. What's your closing thought for us? How about just this? There's a very brief quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation. And so what I'm thinking here is that worship... Uh, at least in the Judeo-Christian tradition, can be like that. It's not just something that we engage in, but somehow it completes the the process of enjoying some excellence. Okay, thank, on that note, thank you very much for joining us. It's been sure. a great conversation. Absolutely. Our guest has been Daniel Speak, professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University, author of many things about our topic. So, John, really quickly, did you learn much today? Oh, I, I, I thought Daniel was a great guest. Uh, uh, it, it, aside from speaking clearly and having a good radio voice, uh, and thinking I'm smart and you're handsome, uh, he he put his points clearly and yet without any defensiveness. He was open to other ideas. Uh, terrific. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a terrific show. This conversation will continue as always on our blog and on our ever expanding Facebook community, where there we're like sixteen or seventeen hundred strong now, and you become one of them. You can also download podcasts of our program from our website. For the final word, uh, we've got our own God here, uh, our, our, our local guy with little wings on his sandals uh, and, a tr- and a knack for, think, for tremendously fast I'm delivery. Not now, wait a minute. Who, would, who is that that you would be thinking of? It, One of the fastest talking guys in the world, but is he really a God? Well, you're thinking that Ian Scholes. The 60-second philosopher isn't worthy of worship? Well, I think he's worthy of worship. And, you know, I, maybe we can bow down to him as the god of speed, the god of fast-talking philosophy. That's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, many churches have what are called worship teams devoted to puzzling out the appropriate ways a congregation should praise God. The consensus is that all glory belongs to God, which becomes problematic when it comes to gatherings of the faithful. Should a congregation be too enthusiastic, for example, the manifestation of worship could overshadow worship itself. This has become a controversial issue in the Catholic Church. When the Church decided to become more inclusive back in the 60s, one consequence was that the Latin Mass in many churches went right out the window, and along with it, traditional Catholic music. In no time, guitars and bongos infused sacred spaces. This has led to a lot of grumbling from those who don't like that sort of thing. It's all over the blogs today. Complaints that overnight, 1,500 years of high-end culture was replaced by kumbaya. That hushed reverence before the sacrament of Jesus Christ on the altar was replaced by bold and lusty voices singing off-key. Critics claim that the music went from celebrating God to celebrating the gathering to celebrate God. Worst of all, the common thread to complaints went, that music, once meant to voice one's faith and enforce the teachings of the church, was now merely intended to give parishioners the warm fuzzies and was nothing but mere entertainment. Lucy Carroll, organist and choir director for the Carmelite Monastery in Philadelphia, famous in Catholic circles for the vehemence of her disregard, went even further. She claimed in the newsletter for Adoramus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, that many of the new hymns actually subvert the beliefs of the church. Some of the lyrics treat bread and wine as only a symbol of Christ, not Christ himself, and even worse, that it is not Christ's body and blood, but our body and blood. In other words, reading between her lines, not only is modern church music terrible, it comes dangerously close to heresy. Fortunately for those Catholics who prefer singing Jesus is my boyfriend to frowning their way through a Gregorian chant, the Inquisition probably won't be coming from them anytime soon. And then there's Kevin Orland Johnson, who wrote in the online newsletter Catholic Answers, quote, introducing dance into the liturgy in the United States leads to an atmosphere of profanity. 
which would easily suggest to those present worldly places and profane situations that would reduce the liturgy to mere entertainment, unquote. Well, I don't know. I'm not a church-going man, but I've attended a mass or two over the years and have witnessed with my own senses the phenomenon called liturgical dance or Christian body worship in which middle-aged women, dressed in tunics called praisewear, lurch around the altar accompanied by tuneless and rhythm-free music. Despite what critics claim, I would hesitate to call liturgical dance heresy. On the other hand, I would definitely not call it entertainment. I gotta go. The Wisdom of the Ages, in a nutshell, from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2009. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Our production coordinator is Devin Strolovich. Our directors of research are Daniel Elstein and Cole Leahy. Lael Weiss is our webmaster. Also thanks to Zoe Corneli, Merle Kessler, Corey Goldman, Jennifer Jensen, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation. Also from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. <laughs>